I think that it's completely reasonable for an employer to uh, be able to, as part of a, a background check of an employee, to know whether or not the employee is a, a, a convicted felon. I mean, if an employee is going to be you know, at your cash register, you want to know if he's embezzled from another employer and has been convicted of it. I mean, it just makes common sense. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is uh, off on uh, legal business today and unable to be here. Uh, we're going to be talking today about criminal background checks and whether they are fair or unfair to workers. But before we do that, uh, let me just mention uh, our sponsors and take a second to thank them for their sponsorship uh, first of all, let me thank uh, Clio, the web-based practice management solution, which is available at goclio.com. SunTrust, uh, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And Firm Manager, the uh, practice management uh, application from LexisNexis, available at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, just last week, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, held a hearing uh, on the issue of uh, arrest and conviction records as a hiring barrier. Uh, one concern of the EEOC is whether uh, arrest and conviction records become somewhat of a, a de facto uh, discriminatory uh, barrier to employment. Uh, the issue uh, of this is not new and uh, Certainly one of our guests uh, recently, uh, the National Employment Law Project recently did a, published a, a fairly in-depth study on this issue uh, of criminal background checks and the impact uh, on employment uh, and issued some recommendations on that issue. We're going to hear more about that as the program goes forward. But uh, let me uh, bring our guests on to the program and get the discussion going today. We have three guests joining us today to discuss this issue. Uh, first of all, let me introduce attorney Charles H. Kaplan, a partner in Sedgwick LLP's New York office. Charlie Kaplan represents management throughout the United States and abroad in virtually all aspects of labor and employment law and related litigation. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Charlie Kaplan. I'm delighted to be on the show with you, Bob. And we're glad to have you. And joining us next uh, from Oakland, California, is attorney Maurice Emsalem. He is the policy co-director of the National Employment Law Project, and he was an author of the report I just alluded to. Uh, at uh, NELP, he has worked on collaborations with organizers and advocates that have successfully modernized state unemployment insurance programs. He's created employment protections for workfare workers and reduced unfair barriers to employment of people with criminal records in state laws and in city hiring practices. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Maurice. Thank you, Bob. And uh, last but not least, joining us today is Attorney Ray McLean, uh, Director of the Employment Discrimination Project for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law 
Ray is responsible for leading the committee's efforts to combat employment discrimination through litigation, public education, and policy advocacy. And uh, as I understand it, uh, Ray was present uh, for at least uh, part of the uh, EEOC hearings last week. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ray McLean. Great to be here, Bob. Uh, well, this is this is a, a big topic, uh, and, and we can come at it from a number of different directions. But uh, Maurice, just be, since you recently authored a study on this, uh, I, I wonder if you could perhaps uh, give us the, uh, the the nutshell version of what you found. Uh, I think this came out in March of, of this year. Uh, tell us, tell us uh, in, in a summary form what, what the study concluded. Well, you know, we've been, we have a project here in Oakland where we represent workers who are uh, trying to navigate criminal background checks for employment. And uh, in the process of um, screening the workers for these various cases, we help them file EEOC charges. You know, we, we were very struck by the prevalence of these blanket policies that deny employment to people with criminal records. So no one with a felony, no one with a misdemeanor need apply, no limit on the age of the offense, very, very, uh, very broad disqualification. So we thought, you know, we would do a little bit more digging around to see uh, how prevalent those policies were beyond what we were seeing in our project. So we went on Craigslist for uh, uh, a month or two and just started tracking the sorts of of uh, job announcements that were posted on Craigslist. And what we found were lots and lots of, of postings by big employers and small employers, by temp agencies and 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 um, you know uh, and and uh, non-temp agencies that included these broad disqualifications. And then we got into in the report whether these disqualifications um, comply with civil rights laws. And uh, your other guests can get into this a little bit more, but basically there are these guidelines that the that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, put out uh, almost 25 years ago now um, that say because background checks have a huge impact on people of color who are protected against discrimination under Title VII of the, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that employers have to um, have to establish that the the um, the criminal record requirements, the screening requirements, are job related. So that gets into whether the offense is directly related to the job, the age, the seriousness of the offense. So they're very reasonable criteria that apply that apply to employers, and um, so that's the sort of thing that we document in the report. We also talk a lot about uh, the big um, big push around litigation in this area. There are six or seven uh, EEOC cases that have been filed. There's a lot of law, uh, consumer protection law that applies to background checks as well, applies to employers and the background check companies. There's a whole lot of litigation in that area too. So the point of the report was to um, kind of, you know, put this issue on the map a little bit more for folks and and spell out the laws and where some of the legal activity is going in that area. And the last thing we did was we tried to put a number on uh, on on this kind of broad concept of all these people with records being denied jobs. And so we, you know, we spent some time nailing down some numbers and came up with this number, 65 million workers who have either an arrest or a conviction record that will show up on, on, 
on most um, routine background checks. And, and I think you I think you say in the report that that's roughly one in one in four workers. One in four adults. Uh, it's that's pretty right. amazing. Uh, yep. A pretty amazing number, uh, and I want to I want to get to all the guests here. But Ray Ray McLean, let me just ask you if you can help us understand a little bit more how this is a a civil rights issue, how this is uh, an employment discrimination issue. Well, if you if you look at the uh, incarceration rates uh, and arrest rates uh, for African American uh, workers, particularly African American males, uh, th- these are several times the uh, uh, rate of incarceration or or arrest uh, or conviction uh, for whites uh, and and significantly more than for Hispanics. But both Hispanics and um, uh, African-Americans bear the brunt of of actual um, prosecution through the uh, uh, criminal justice system. And this has been increasingly true over the last uh, three decades. Um, when the um, EEOC guidance was originally issued, uh, there was some uh, impact uh, that was more burdensome on minority populations. But uh, today, it's uh, astronomical. Um, and the uh, estimate is that uh, of the uh, in the minority population that as much as uh, 35 to 40 percent uh, of um, particular population groups will uh, have uh, a, a criminal um, history uh, as compared to much, much smaller numbers uh, for the uh, uh, white population generally. So, I, I, you know, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing from the the two of you so far is that uh, criminal background checks uh, perhaps have a have a, a disparate impact on uh, certain certainly on, on minorities and and perhaps are are unfair uh, in in their kind of uh, broad and, and generic uh, sweep. Uh, let me let me turn to Charles Kaplan now. Charles, you you represent employers and labor and management. Issues uh, fr- from where you sit, uh, you know, is there are, are criminal background checks uh, always justified? Are they overused? Uh, wh- where do you see it from the management side? First of all, I, I'd like to say that I think management, just like uh, all other aspects of all all other parts of our community, uh, you know, is concerned, you know, whether if, if it, about anything being unfair, and clearly. Employers are interested in, in um, hiring the best workers and also in having uh, fair hiring practices. And they're not interested in uh, you know, being defendants in employment discrimination lawsuits. However, um, I think that whether someone has a criminal record, uh, particularly a felony record, is uh, often very relevant uh, to the job in question. And uh, checking public records for uh, convictions in particular is, uh, I think, often not only appropriate, but necessary so that an employer can safeguard not only its property, but also uh, its employees and customers and the public in general. In fact, in in a lot of uh, jobs, uh, there are requirements that federal law uh, imposes, uh, for example, where security clearances are needed or where uh, workers are are using... um, machinery or equipment that could be dangerous or workers in power plants, uh, uh, particularly nuclear power plants or other uh, areas where the public safety could be affected, 
you know, where, where certain background checks are not only uh, reasonable, but they're mandated by law. So I think that, um, you know, sort of just broadly say, well, you know, disproportionate number of uh, African-Americans or Hispanics are convicted of, of serious felonies means that, therefore, uh, an employer uh, learning about those um, uh, convictions through legitimate public record checks uh, is somehow discriminatory is, is really uh, a conclusion that, uh, that really makes, makes no sense. Um, you know, we're not talking about a situation where uh, there's a, some kind of a test and a disproportionate number of minority uh, applicants are not passing it. And so, therefore, there's a question, you know, is the test valid? Is there something discriminatory about the test? Um, I think here we're talking about, you know, the simple fact that if people are convicted of crimes, um, particularly of, of serious felonies, um, the fact that they're, that that a disproportionate number of people from one community or another could be convicted doesn't necessarily mean that there's something uh, discriminatory going on, uh, and and therefore I think that um, when you, when you look at the the safety of the employer's uh, property and also of the employees as weighed against an employer knowing about uh, these factors, I think that it's completely reasonable for an employer to. Uh, be able to, as part of a, a background check of an employee, to know whether or not the employee is a, a, a convicted felon. I mean, if an employee is going to be you know, at your cash register, you want to know if he's embezzled from another employer and has been convicted of it. I mean, it just makes common sense. I guess, I guess I, uh, I'm going to assume, and, and maybe and you, can, you can all correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm, I'm going to assume you, you might all say that there are certainly some circumstances where a criminal background check is legitimate or some, some types of jobs and some types of positions uh, where an employer has every right to uh, conduct a criminal background check. I, from, from reading, uh, well, in particular reading your, your report, uh, Maurice, that you, you co-authored, it, it seemed to be that the report was pointing to examples that, that you uh, felt were uh, perhaps uh, where the background checks were unnecessary or being applied uh, in an overbroad, overly broad way. I think you had a, at least one example in there where, where uh, it was sort of an, an online application that automatically disqualified anybody who who self uh, reported a, a prior arrest without giving any regard to what the nature of the, the crime or, or whatever might have happened there. I mean, Maurice, do you, do you agree that there are yeah. certain circumstances where it's appropriate? And, and, yes, of course. And I think we try to make that point in the report that really what we're trying to, first, the point is that background checks have gone too far, that, 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 that there are these very reasonable EEOC standards. And I think most employers agree that the standards themselves are, are, are very reasonable that you have to show before you deny folks for all sorts of jobs based on any conviction that that the criteria are job-related, that you've looked at the age and seriousness of the offense, and that's all we're saying. We're saying that background checks have kind of gone too far and that they need to get back to these reasonable um, standards um, because they have this big impact on, on people of color. And, and you know, we, we have, a, I don't know if it's helpful to talk about this now, but there's some great research out there that makes the point supporting these standards. There's a lot of new research that shows that um, people, even with felony convictions, who have uh, steered clear of the criminal justice system for a given period of time, for felony burglary offense, 
if somebody hasn't reoffended in in four years, they're no more likely than somebody in the general population to commit another crime. For aggravated assault, it's four years. For robbery, it's a little bit over seven years. So what we're trying to get at are these, you know, broad disqualifications, which are very prevalent out there, uh, and get people focused, get employers, and the temp agencies, too, play a big part in all this, get them way more focused on these EEOC standards. And uh, I'd just like to add uh, to what uh, Maurice said there, that uh, the examples that uh, Charles was giving are are really um, the extreme examples that are not the typical um, application of the use of criminal history to to deny people opportunities to work. Uh, too often, like the online application that kicked out anyone who acknowledged an arrest, simply arrest records are considered uh, disqualifying. That's absolutely um, inappropriate. Um, many state laws, for example, uh, make it inappropriate and or illegal in some some circumstances to consider uh convictions for uh for minor offenses that don't involve uh violence um, a huge proportion of the folks who have served time or, or have have convictions including felony convictions uh are simply for convictions related to um um Possession of drugs, uh, or for uh, uh, being involved as minor uh, traffickers in uh, drugs in in uh, their youth, uh, and that past experience really is totally irrelevant to what kind of worker they're going to be today or tomorrow. And it's the inappropriate use. Uh, the indiscriminate uh, across-the-board disqualification of, of workers from the opportunity uh, to work. Uh, and just to, to add one additional example, the uh, biggest problem often comes when an employer acquires another company and decides all of a sudden that they're going to uh, do criminal background checks on the existing workforce. Um, and we've seen a number of examples of this, and at the EEOC forum, several examples of this were cited uh, last week. Um, totally inappropriate for someone who has a good work record with the company for 10, 15, or 20 years to be put on the street when a new uh, company acquires the business and um, applies a a criterion that uh, no one who has a prior criminal conviction uh, can uh, continue working here. Uh, if I might uh, jump in at this point, I, do, I, yes. I, I think one of the problems, with all due respect to my colleagues, is that you know probably neither of them have ever had to you know owned a business and had to meet a payroll. And I think that when you own a business and when you're trying to um, uh, to compete and employ people in today's very very difficult economic situation. The last thing you need is somebody uh, uh, who is going to uh, engage in conduct in the workplace that could either damage uh, your property or, uh, uh, or, or, or hurt in other individuals. I mean, for example, 
Um, one of the comments that was recently made was, well, you know, all these, these drug-related convictions don't matter. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been involved in helping employers and working closely both with employers and law enforcement in situations where there is extensive drug dealing in a workplace, where a workplace is being used uh, for the dr- dealing and transportation of drugs. Uh, so I, I would really disagree that, I mean, if somebody's been convicted of uh, dealing drugs, for example, I think that that's a serious thing. Uh, I think that also people who use drugs, um, you know, if they're using them either at work or if they're impaired by the use of drugs at work, uh, that could cause serious safety risks. Uh, in addition, um, I think uh, you know, so-called minor convictions for things like shoplifting uh, you know, if you, if you have a retail store and you're getting inventory shrinkage and it's due to your, your employees, not, not a customer, but an employee shoplifting, that's just as serious to you. And then I think um, there are lots of situations, you know, which are more serious. I'd like uh, my two colleagues to sit in a room with the family of Kathy Sue Weaver, who was raped and beaten to death in her suburban Orlando, Florida home back in 2001. And her killer then set her home on fire in order to uh, try to destroy evidence. And six months prior to uh, uh, Miss Weaver's murder, she had contracted with Burdines, a uh, large Florida department store, to have air conditioning ducts in her home cleaned. And un- unknown to her, both of the men who the, um, the air uh, duct cleaning service sent had criminal records. One was a twice convicted sex offender on parole. And uh, six months after uh, the work was completed, that man, Jeff, Jeffrey Helfling, returned to uh, Miss Weaver's home and raped and murdered her. And this is an isolated case, and this is something an employer has to be concerned about, not simply because the employer may then be subject to a lawsuit from Miss Weaver's family, but because the m- employer, by uh, being negligent and not checking the criminal record of a, uh, of a convicted sex offender, has basically introduced this person, this sex offender, this parasite, to a uh, to to a, to an innocent person who then becomes uh, you know this parasite's prey, and uh, so, so we're not just talking academically and all these platitudes about oh well you know it's after after the years go by um, you know uh, you know sometimes I mean you know that that may be the statistics but how do you know you know I remember when I was a kid and I saw the movie Birdman and Alcatraz and I felt really badly for Burt Lancaster and I asked my dad you know why couldn't they let him out and my father looked at me and said you know Charlie there's some people you never know when they'll snap again you never know you know if they've killed somebody or hurt somebody when in a situation where the rest of us would restrain ourselves they'll do something and hurt someone again so some there's some people you can't let out and I think clearly with sex offenders uh, we've learned that in many cases, uh, tragically, by the fact that we let them out and they do it again. So, Charlie, hold that, hold that thought. I want to follow up on that, but I have to take a, a quick break here. Uh, and uh, we're going to break for a couple minutes. We'll be back in just a couple seconds to follow up uh, on this discussion. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes, 
And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781 781- Five five one nine nine six zero. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host Jay Craig Williams is away today. We are talking about criminal background checks in the employment context. We're joined by Attorney Charlie Kaplan, a partner in Sedgwick LLP's New York office. Attorney Maurice M. Salem. Uh, policy co-director of the National Employment Law Project in Oakland, California, and attorney Ray McLean uh, from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law in Washington, D.C. Uh, Charlie, I just I just wanted to follow up with you. I mean, my understanding is that even the the EEOC guidelines on this, uh, you know, don't uh, don't allow an absolute rule. I mean, they, they suggest a, a balancing test, perhaps. Uh, and uh, I, I hear what you're saying about uh, some of these severe cases, but uh, I also hear the other guests saying that that uh, there are also uh, many cases that certainly never 
never uh, involve uh, crimes of that kind of severity, uh, uh, perhaps not even convictions in some cases. Uh, it, what do you advise your clients? I mean, do, do you advise them to apply a balancing test? How do you tell them to come at this issue? Well, I generally advise them, first of all, not only to follow federal law, but also state and local laws. And in states like New York, for example, there are a number of what I think are, are reasonable and legitimate uh, constraints on how you can use a background check. In general, arrest records are not relevant unless the person has recently been arrested and, and the process is still ongoing as to whether he or she will be convicted. Um, and often, you know, there may be jobs where uh, certain convictions uh, are not even a, even a felony conviction may not be uh, should not be used as a bar for employment, uh, and, and I'm not arguing uh, that in general the the guidelines are uh, are misguided, but it's my understanding that uh, uh, my friends on on this call uh, want the EEOC to go way beyond the current guidelines and want changes in the law uh, and in regulation that would substantially. Um, uh, limit the ability of employers uh, to to use um, criminal background checks, particularly of uh, convictions and particularly of felony convictions. Well, let, let's hear from them on that because we're we're, starting, yeah, we're mean, getting that, close to I, the end of the uh, time here. I want to hear uh, Maurice. What, what's your answer? To yeah, that? I'm not I'm not sure where you're getting that, Charlie. I mean, I think what we're asking for the guidelines are 25 years old. There's a court case that says that it's hard to defer to these old guidelines because a lot has changed in 25 years. So the theme of the hearing was to take uh, evidence from you know experts and employers and and uh, and, and uh, folks who um, who help place workers in jobs to evaluate whether it's time to update those guidelines to take into account the sort of research that we were just discussing and other factors. So um, I'm you know I, I think that is the main goal is and and that the other part to updating the guidelines is that it's a real opportunity. To um, to publicize more broadly to the employer community and everybody else that um, you know that these guidelines are on the books that this is an important issue that a lot has changed in the past 25 years so I, I'm I don't know that folks are looking for any certainly not regulations I haven't heard that or changes in law uh, the focus right now is on updating these guidelines to um, to make them more current. Yeah, and and Ray Ray was uh, at the hearing last week, and I, I'm wondering what you what you walked away with uh, from from attending that. What do you think is the goal of the EEOC here, and what would you like to see come out of this? And I think the EEOC is in fact going to move with all deliberate speed, uh, so to speak, uh, to uh, update the guidelines. Um, I, I think the uh, uh, the speech that uh, Charlie made just before the break it, it reflects why those guidelines need to be updated. Um, uh, I, I have to say that I, for one, uh, have in fact met a payroll. I was in private law practice for over 30 years, and I represented employers as well as employees. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, stereotypes uh, too often control decisions. Uh, and the, the purpose of updating the guidelines and giving some more concrete um, guidance to employers is to steer them away uh, from relying on stereotypes. I mean, the best, uh, the, the best predictor of what an employee is going to do for an employer um, 
is what have they been doing most recently? And particularly if they have a consistent record of steady employment, uh, if they have been clean for five, ten, uh, in some cases, we know of people who've been denied jobs for convictions, for a single conviction that was over 25 years old. Um, that doesn't make any sense, and that reflects stereotypical thinking that has nothing to do with current um, risk to uh, the public or to coworkers. Um, and I think it's because um, there are too many people uh, in the management community uh, and and too many folks um, uh, who are advising the management community who uh, tend to fall back on those kinds of stereotypes uh, when the issue becomes, you know, gets under discussion um, that uh, new guidance and with more uh, specific substance uh, is required from the EOC. And I think they're uh, preparing to step up to the challenge of providing that. Well, thanks a lot. We are getting very close to the end of our time for this show, and I did want to give each of you an opportunity to have kind of your your final say uh, on the topic. And also, as you're doing that, if you'd like to let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you or get more information about the work that you're doing. Uh, Maurice uh, M. Salam, let me start with you. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks, Bob. Yeah, we have a, as I mentioned, we have a project here that helps workers navigate criminal background checks. We have a website. It's www.nelp.org, which has some worker rights fact sheets and lots of other material related to this issue. So if folks are interested in following up, um, you can also access my email address uh, on our website. And hopefully, um, you know, we're real interested in working with both employers and, uh, and worker advocacy organizations who are uh, working through these issues. Great. And in that full report, uh, which was titled 65 Million Need Not Apply, the case for reforming criminal background checks for employment, is uh, up there. Uh, it's up your, there as well. Uh, There's a website. docket of all the litigation that's up there as well. There's hopefully some, some good materials for the, for the uh, legal community there. Very good. And, and uh, Ray McLean from the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, uh, your final thoughts? We can be contacted uh, on our uh, website, www.lawyerscommittee.com. Uh, .org. Um, and uh, we have uh, some active litigation also, which is uh, uh, described on the web pages that uh, you can find on our website. Um, and we also are uh, eager to cooperate with uh, worker organizations and with, uh, with employers who are interested in uh, applying uh, fact-based um, experience-based uh, standards to um, to have good policies in, in this area. Uh, very good. And your, your website, I think, is at uh, lawyerscommittee.org. Is that sound right? That's correct. Yep. And, uh, and, and Charlie, uh, since, since you were a little bit outnumbered on this panel, uh, although you certainly uh, stood your, held your own, uh, I thought I'd give you the, the final word uh, on the topic today. Well, first of all, if, if anyone's interested in uh, receiving any guidance about um, employee uh, in background checks when hiring or other hiring or other workplace law issues, uh, please feel free to contact me or my partners here at uh, the Cedric Firm. Uh, I can be reached at um, charles.kaplan, that's C-H-A-R-L-E-S dot K-A-P-L-A-N, at Cedric Law, that's S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K-L-A-W dot com. 
uh, charles.kaplan at cedriclaw.com, and my direct telephone number is 212-898-5524, and our website is www.cedriclaw.com. And, and, and in closing, I'd say that um, as a management lawyer, and also as a citizen, I, uh, I believe that it's, it's important for employers who are faced with a lot of contradictory pressures uh, when uh, hiring and, and different and contradictory and conflicting laws uh, concerning uh, criminal background checks that they have appropriate guidance. But to the extent the changes that my colleagues are urging uh, would uh, restrict employers from engaging in reasonable use of uh, uh, criminal background checks, uh, I would uh, respectfully disagree with their positions. Well, my sincere thanks to all three of you for taking the time to be with us today and to share your thoughts. It's a it's a difficult issue, and you've certainly shed some uh, shed some light on the topic for me. Uh, so, thanks again for being with us today. Uh, thank you, thank you. Thanks, just uh, uh, and just a word to our listeners to uh, remind them that uh, they can find uh, past uh, editions of this show uh, coming up soon is our, our sixth anniversary of doing this show. Uh, all of them are at the uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com and in the, uh, in the uh, podcast library and iTunes. And, of course, you can get a CLE credit for listening to select uh, Legal Talk Network shows. Just go to the LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center icon that you find there. Uh, we'll be back again next week with a, another show uh, on a pressing legal topic and uh, with any luck J. Craig Williams will be with us then so we'll talk to you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network its officers, directors, employees agents, representatives shareholders and subsidiaries none of the content should be considered legal advice as always consult a lawyer Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.